Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Good morning. Great to see you. Um, as Nathaniel said, if you don't know me, my name is Richard and I'm one of the pastors here and uh, hope you have had a brilliant week. Uh, some of you who are part of the church will know that I have spent this last week in Athens at a, um, a meeting of uh, church leaders who represent other advanced churches. Advance is the family of churches that we belong to uh, from all around the world. So we've had... Um, Church leaders there from, let me think about this, Australia, Thailand, India, Nepal, uh, Switzerland, the UK, all parts of the UK, USA, Kenya, South Africa, and I'm sure there's others I'm missing. It's been a really tiring and intense but significantly profitable time because we've been praying together and meeting and planning and talking about how we can increasingly begin new churches in various parts of the world and strengthen existing churches as well. And um, I wanted to just uh, kind of say that to you because it occurred to me when I was there, I mean, this is an obvious thing to say really, that we're called to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that happens not by kind of super apostles, it happens by ordinary people like you and I. And I, I want to kind of keep that wheel turning. You want to crank that wheel because there'll be times and seasons where we should, individuals like us, should feel that call to go to the ends of the earth. That may be you. And if, if at any point you feel that call, um, that's okay. Come and speak to me. We are called into something bigger, both through the church movement that we belong to, but actually with Christians all around the world. We are called into the bigness of what Jesus is doing, the cosmic mission of Jesus. There was a, a really significant day when we all traveled up to the Parthenon together. I think there might be a, a, a photo. The Parthenon, there it is, covered in scaffolding, unfortunately, but it is a significant landmark in Athens. And um, we stood there, and if, you've, if you're kind of you're familiar with Acts 17, this is where um, you can read about this at the back end of Acts 17. Paul would have walked into Athens at one point, probably the only God-fearing you know, Christian in town, and he would have visited the Parthenon, which in those days would have been just this massive, kind of all-dominating structure, and inside it would have been filled with all the gods, Artemis and Athena and Zeus and everyone else. It would have been filled with all the gods that were being worshipped, and then um, I think on the next photo, Esther, this is called the Areopagus, Mars Hill. It's just a rocky outcrop. And you stand there, and you can kind of see the Parthenon in the distance. And in Acts 17, Paul stands there with the men of Athens, the leaders of Athens. And he says, men of Athens, let me tell you, I mean, I can see you're religious. Cause it's obvious from the Parthenon and everything that's going on there. But let me tell you about my God. He doesn't live in houses like that that are built by human hands. He in fact, is the maker. He's the one who made houses like that. He made the people who made the houses. And he has appointed each person in their season to do the things that he's called them to do in every season of history so that people might come to know him. And we stood there. We actually read on the Areopagus. We read this verse out. And again, I want to bring you this encouragement because it, it reminded me, it struck me as I was standing there looking up at that and hearing the words being spoken that you and I are alive today we're called to Gateway this morning because in Acts 17, we're taught that God has appointed that. You and I are meant to be in this room together today in this season of history. We could have been born in, I don't know, 1830. God has appointed the times and the seasons for us to be together that he may become known. Think about that. There's a significance to our gathering. There's a significance to our the body life here at Gateway. That, that passage of scripture ends with, he's not in the Parthenon, he's close to you. 
God is close to us, gateway. Significant, incredible moment. I think there might be another photo as well. Uh, here's our own version of a Greek god. That's our Matthew. <laughs> Matt was, that's Matt standing on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. So Vix and I were there, and Matt and Grace were there, and Matt was reading out uh, Acts 17. And I mean, there was, I don't know, 90 of us listening in. And there were people who weren't with us kind of listening in and looking up at the Parthenon and making the connection for the first time. Oh, right, yeah, I get it. Anyway, my, um, my prayer today is as you hear the gospel rehearsed once again, it will, it will maybe take root in your heart in a new and a fresh way. And that there might be a stirring, even as you hear the gospel today, maybe you've been a Christian for 40, 50 years, that God has called you into this iteration of history, into this family, togetherness, so that he can be made known. Anyway, here we go. Um, so as Nathaniel said, we are in the uh, final of four-part series in the uh, book of Titus. Uh, from next week, we're starting a whole new series in the book of John, and we'll be working through the book of John for the rest of the year. It's my favorite book in the Bible. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but uh, back to this morning, four weeks we've been in Titus uh, in a series that we've called Family Values, and we're looking at how Paul the Apostle writes to Titus, his young pastor friend, who is leading a gospel community on the island of Crete, which is quite nearby to where we've been last week, which is a really difficult, hostile place. As, uh, and as this, this new thing, the gospel, sweeps across the island and people are getting saved, Titus is, is faced with the prospect of discipling all these new converts to Christianity. I was talking to someone last week who's from a, a persecuted part of the world, and he was saying, our biggest problem is the number of new disciples who are coming in, and they're bringing all sorts of kind of crazy from their existing beliefs and, and that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, that's a good problem to have. And Titus is faced with the same problem. He's got this, these new converts coming into the church, and it's messy. And, uh, and so Paul writes to him, and he says, well, this is, this is how you deal with that. And, and of course, it's messy partly because of the type of place that Crete is. It's full of mer retired mercenary soldiers and immorality and everything that goes with that. And uh, as I said, one of the many problems that Titus is facing is that he's having to unwork and unravel the prevailing religious culture of Crete and how that has influenced how people are living, ways which are at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ and this new way of life that they've signed up to. And that's what this letter is all about. The book of Titus is, is basically this. Number one, this is the gospel. Number two, this is how you should live it out. That's the kind of the, the framework for the book. Now, in Crete at this point, the major deity at that point, the major god was Zeus. There you can see him. He's actually sitting atop the Parthenon. He was the warmongering, sex-crazed, and often, very often, deceptive god of the Greeks who created and then treated humanity as his plaything. Zeus was constantly at war with the other gods and uh, was a master deceiver. And he was consumed with his own power and glory, and he would do whatever it took to protect his glory and to satisfy his desires, even if that meant at times, which it did, torturing or killing his own family, other gods, or deceiving women. Uh, he'd come to women in the form of, uh, I don't know, something else, another kind of um, an, another uh, version of himself, and he would just take sex from humans whenever he wanted. Zeus was the high god above the pantheon of the Greek gods. And so for Cretans, this was their understanding of what a god was like. This is how God behaved. And therefore, in many ways, this is what Cretans were like as well. Now, right off the bat, let me issue this challenge because 
whether in first century Crete or 21st century Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul, there is an important lesson for us here already. In many ways, one of the things that scripture teaches is that we become like what we worship. Just say that again, if this is a new concept for you. The thing that you worship, you will become like that thing. We need to be careful what we worship because you will become like that thing. Let me explain. We were made, we were designed to worship Jesus, all of us, and our hearts are therefore kind of wired, if you like. They kind of gasp uh, and reach for, for Jesus, to worship Jesus and to become like him. Now, we don't always recognize this, but we're supposed to live in the world. We see this all the way back in the creation account of mankind in Genesis 1 in relationship with God, being with God, representing God, reflecting God, enjoying God, and in all those things, being a living, breathing advertisement for who he is and what he's like and what he's done in your life. We are right here and now meant to worship Jesus and be like him. And so we're meant to become like what we worship. That's how we're designed and what we should worship should be Jesus. The flip side of this, of course, is that because our hearts were designed like that, if you worship something other than Jesus, then the heart is already preset to become like that thing. Basically, whatever you make Lord in your life, you are destined to become like that thing. If you want to, therefore, live like Jesus, as we unpack this passage today and look at some of the things that you should and shouldn't do, if you want to live like Jesus, you want to be like Jesus, worship Jesus. That's how it works. You can tell people who worship and center their lives on money, for example, by their language and their lifestyle and how they present to the world. Here's a guy. Here's a good example. I don't know who. I hope that's not anyone's kind of family or friend or, you know, I just (laughs) randomly picked that from the internet. But you can tell. I mean, this picture tells you this guy centers his life on money. And I cannot think, literally cannot think of a solitary example in history where that has been a good and a healthy thing for someone who has worshipped money. You don't have to look too far into our own culture of celebrity to see many examples of this. It's fairly kind of in your face. And that's why in Crete, the worship of Zeus was demonstrated by people in the culture by their love of war and pride and glory and sex and power. It was really interesting just this week, walking around in Athens, seeing how those things are still saturated into the culture. It's in the art, it's in the statues, it's, I mean, it was on plates I was eating off. Sex, glory, power, these are things that got into the DNA of the land somehow back then when they were worshipping it, and it hasn't really ever been expunged as well. And, uh, and so on, on Crete, there's all these people who are gloriously saved by the gospel, which is hallmarked by love and kindness and self-sacrifice and peace, we get this clash of kingdoms and this clash of worldviews in the early church. And that is a mess that Titus is told to clear up. And so, of course, what's, what's the solution to all of this, both for the Cretans in the first century and for all of us right now? Well, it's the gospel. Because The gospel tells us what God is like, that he's loving and kind and patient. And therefore, as we worship him, it should change us as it calls us 
into a life of loving him and loving people, and we become more and more like him. And so Paul says to Titus, if you want to sort out this messy church situation you find yourself in, preach the gospel. Preach it accurately. Preach it its fullness. Preach it over and over again. That's the most loving thing you can do in the church. Help and remind people to see what Jesus is like. Teach them the gospel. Teach them that Jesus, not like Zeus on top of the Parthenon, but Jesus is the God who's come to us, but that he's nothing at all like Zeus. He is kind and he's caring, and you are known by God and loved by God, not as a plaything to be used and abused and spat out, but you are loved and you're invited in because God made you, because God loves you, and the reason that he sent Jesus was to do what was necessary to bring you close to him, into the peace and the privilege of becoming a part of God's family, cherished sons and daughters of God. Say it loud and say it proud. That's what you are. And then as you teach them this gospel and bring them into relationship with God, teach them how to live like they know it. That's how you'll sort out this messy church and gateway. That's pretty good advice for us too. And so you get the book of Titus, which is this kind of basic manifesto, if you like, for how these new Christians are to radically reorder their lives and their priorities and how they're to operate in the church and operate in the home. And today, we'll look at how they, or more to the point, we are supposed to operate in the world in relation to our neighbor and our society and the civil authorities and the government and so on. And so in today's passage, we get the same pattern. This is how you're meant to live in the world in light of the bigness and the glory and the wonder and the extensive call of the gospel in your life. The gospel which works to bring salvation and wholeness to the ends of the earth and to the depths of your heart. Let's read what uh, Paul tells Titus to teach these new Christians. It'll come up on the screen, but if you've got a church Bible, page 1198, uh, we're going to read through Titus 3. It's a short passage. It says... Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, Titus, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We also lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when their kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal, uh, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, hope, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are actually self-condemned. So... Three things for us here. If this is a Christian, this is how you should live. This is, this is why. It's the gospel. And therefore, this is how you shouldn't live. Easy peasy, right? So let's get into it. Verse 1. Be subject to rulers 
and authorities. Be obedient and do what is good. Slander no one. Be peaceable. Be considerate. Be gentle. Now, Crete, as I've already kind of alluded to, was an island of frequent violent uprising against the Roman Empire who ruled them. These were a rugged people, remember. They hated Rome, their overlords, and so they would often rebel against the empire and they would try to undermine it. And Titus is told that this isn't actually how you're meant to live as a Christian. You're supposed to obey the government and be a good citizen and demonstrate to the world that in your peace towards your fellow man and your peaceable submission to the government, you are demonstrating faith in a higher ruling authority, Jesus, who is Lord over all. Now, of course, in this day and age, this opens itself up to an interesting line of thought for us at Gateway, because we have to thread this needle very carefully in how we obey and give allegiance to the government. And we have to be very careful about that. On the one hand, we are a people called to be like the Cretans who demonstrate the peace of Christ through our posture of peaceful obedience to the authorities that God has placed over us, whether that's your I don't know, local politician or your school teacher or your boss or whatever it is. That's just one way that we can advertise the goodness of God and our trust in him. But that also presupposes that the ruling authorities are good. And the only way of assessing that is through the lens of the gospel. If those in authority over you are operating in a way that in some measure demonstrates the goodness of God through their high value for human life and for human well-being and so on, well, great. But what happens when they aren't? What are we supposed to do when those ruling authorities in 1930s Germany were the Nazis? Or in 21st century, those authorities are corrupt organizations or oppressive anti-Christian governments. So I have a really good friend I was spending some time with this week who lives in a place where it's kind of borderline illegal to be a Christian, and it's outright illegal to try and convert somebody to Christianity. And we talk from time to time, and I pray for him, and I pray for the government there to change their mind. Because his actions as a Christian in that nation means that obeying God is actually an act of disobedience against the government. And so as Christians, we need to find the ways to obey God first and always, and to celebrate and get behind those ways in which our governments and our ruling authorities reflect God's plan to see order and human flourishing and the alleviation of poverty and oppression, but to also peacefully and prayerfully and without compromise oppose those things that are antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it outlines what that means for us to flourish as a human society. And so in that sense, it's right that we pray against military aggressors in the world and it's okay to lobby and to inquire of our governments peacefully and respectfully when people in our society are living in poverty. Or maybe more crucially for us, when ruling authorities try to enforce views that are not consistent with how the Bible calls us to live. And this is my point. You can only view and assess those situations through the gospel, or else you'll just end up railing against uh, the ruling authorities that God has placed there because they aren't meeting your needs rather than achieving God's purposes in the world. Does that make sense? We need the gospel to help to direct us in that. And so 
if you're in 1930s Germany, you can look at that situation through the, long, the lens of the gospel, and you can and you should legitimately oppose some of those governmental rules, that government, and actually many did. Friedrich Bonhoeffer is a famous example of a German pastor who vocally opposed the Nazi government. Um, Friedrich Bonhoeffer in 19, I think it was 1934, along with a group of other um, Protestant Christians, uh, formed something called the Barman Declaration. And in this declaration, these pastors said, actually, we are not going to stand for the ideology of the state. And Hitler at that time was starting to remove church leaders and put in place some of his own party members. And the basis of the Barman Declaration was that Hitler is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so we'll stand for that. And Bonhoeffer was eventually arrested for this, vocally spoke out against the Nazi regime. He was put in a concentration camp, and then he was executed for it as well. And history is littered with similar examples. On the other end of the scale, we need to be careful not to be oppositional and stroppy towards ruling authorities simply because we don't like how they govern. We need the gospel to guide us in assessing these things, determining right and wrong through how the gospel outlines right and wrong. And even then, even in our opposition, to do so as with a Christian mind view so that we don't become militant in our approach, but we do take a respectful posture of respectful resistance where we might need to. That's more or less how Martin Luther King Jr. led black Americans through the civil rights movement in the USA in the 1960s. <clears throat> Peaceful civil disobedience. Nonviolence, it was called. And he's rightly seen as a hero today for how he achieved this gospel-aligned change at a government level for oppressed people. And so, as we use the gospel rightly, as it pertains to affairs of society, it is possible to both stand out as a witness to Christ through our obedience and submission to the authorities over us. At the same time, we can also stand out as a witness to Christ by peaceably engaging with the authorities, by dialoguing with them, peacefully opposing them where we need to, but with the aim of bringing the wholeness of the gospel into situations. At either end of the scale, it's got to be the gospel that guides us in our affairs in the world. This is why Jesus says to citizens of Jerusalem living under Roman oppression, Roman rule, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes and obey the laws, but give unto God what is God's. Worship and surrender to him ultimately only. Or why Peter says, honor the emperor. That's good but fear only God. That hasn't changed. That instruction is true for us today as well. Now, if you're a first century Greek mercenary soldier for hire, that's a pretty big cultural change. That's a big ask. But they need to know, and we need to know, that the central most important thing that we can do in our dealings in the world is to win people for Christ through our speech and our conduct, and those things have to be shaped by the gospel. This is a 
a really big issue for, uh, for uh, churches in America right now. It has been for some time. The so-called liberal left, again, we were talking about this just last week as well, uh, the so-called liberal left and the Christian right in America, those are silly terms, but that's how they are known, are completely at odds with each other. People's politics in America is literally ripping churches apart over issues like, I don't know, face masks and COVID vaccines and whether or not you support Trump or whether or not it's right to own guns. And the world watches on and does not see the fruit of the gospel in the church. It sees small-mindedness and infighting and hostility. Why would you want to be part of that? How does that win people for Jesus? And of course, we know from history that if this is happening in America today, it's likely making its way in this direction tomorrow. So we need to get this stuff into us now so that we don't become polarized ourselves like this about cultural issues in the UK. Brexit was a potential flashpoint for us recently, We've, uh, as, as was the kind of the various possible responses to the COVID lockdown. I'm so proud of how this church has passed those tests and come through those moments. It bodes well for us in the future. There's often a very fine line for us to be walked in these areas, but if we do this well, it's an incredible witness to the world, an incredible witness to a divided world that we are not divided by our political differences, because our true government exists in heaven. And our king is eternally seated on a throne. And therefore, we don't rise and fall with the winds of cultural and political change. But we stand firm in the truth that Jesus has and is establishing an eternal kingdom. And that one day, every king and prince and prime minister and president will bow to him in recognition that ultimately only Jesus is Lord. In fact, this is how Jesus himself lived during his earthly ministry. He didn't overthrow the government. He told people to pay their taxes and pray for those in authority over them. But he did also peacefully oppose the ruling authorities when they operated in ways that were hostile to the gospel. And he did that never by getting caught up in the sort of spats that people get into on Twitter, and he didn't kind of protest with flags and banners and so on. He gave his attention to getting on with trusting the gospel, to telling the gospel, to calling people into the gospel, to doing gospel stuff. In fact, you might say that his greatest act of peaceful rebellion against the philosophy of the Roman Empire was to give people value and to heal them and to love them Things that the, certainly the Roman Empire didn't do and uh, no other ruling authority can really effectively do anyway. And so Paul says to Titus, teach the people to live like this. What could demonstrate Christ's ability to save and change a life better than seeing a gnarly, battle-hardened Greek mercenary soldier who has come to know Jesus and is now peaceable? and kind, and gentle, and works for the common good. That should really challenge us all in the extent to which we have allowed the work of Christ to, to, in our lives to shape us and change us, and increase us in goodness and mercy and peace and love for our neighbor. Because, as we see in this next verse, verse 3, at one time, we too, before we knew Jesus, were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We worshipped the wrong things. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
Basically, before Jesus took up lordship in our hearts, we were probably not very different to those Cretan soldiers. It would have been completely understandable if we were driven by lust or selfishness or money or anything else in the world for that matter, because why not? What else would you live for? Life is short. Live fast, die young, have a good-looking corpse, right? But in verse 4, now hear this, because this is the whole shooting match. Verse 4. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Just going to leave that there for a minute for you to reflect on as I talk, because it's the most important sentence in the entire book, in my opinion. We gateway at one time, before we knew Christ. We were going about life like those Cretan soldiers. We were driven by whatever our hearts were driven by. And in that situation, we were all headed to, to hell in the fast lane. But when the kindness and the love of our God, our Savior, appeared, everything changes. That word, appeared, the, the biblical Greek word is epiphano. So we get the word epiphany from when you have a sudden realization of something or a sudden good idea. That word means something like this. When God appeared, when he epiphanoed, it was like he suddenly shone a brilliant light into the darkness of our hearts. And at that point, the darkness shriveled back and shrank. That's what happens when the gospel is effective in the human heart. It's one of the reasons that we sing so much about the themes of light and darkness. The only thing that can overcome darkness is light. And our hearts, being darkened from birth, are completely changed and transformed and brought to life when God shines his light on them. And that's the basis for how we can live up to the standards that this letter talks about here. And that's important for you today. And it's important for our world to know because I know so many of you in this room and I know that there is a world of pain going on in some of your situations. And I certainly know, and I'm sure you'd agree, that there's a whole world of oppressive dark pain going on in our world as well. So if any part of you is in darkness, fear lives in darkness. Isolation lives in darkness. Loneliness, people, lives in darkness. Shame and regret darkness. Sin hides away in darkness. It doesn't come out into the light and go, look at me. It hides in the darkness. There is such good news for you today. Out of his kindness towards you and his mercy over you, God wishes to shine his light on those things and obliterate pain and shame and isolation and regret and guilt and to bring you out of the cavern of pain and darkness that you're living in and into the wide open free abundance of his light and love. That happened to me in a flash. 24 years ago, it could happen to you if you say yes to Jesus even today. And I came in tears and brokenness when it became apparent to me one day as I was driving my little white car down the road coming back from a really, really messy relational situation in my own life, that in my own pain and brokenness, I'd retreated into the darkness. I'd hid behind a successful job, or having lots of friends, or doing well in some other, some other area of life. Without even knowing it, I'd worshipped those things, and they'd led me further and further into the cave of darkness where my brokenness couldn't be seen, because on the outside, everything was going well and looked good. And because of this, I didn't need to front up to the reality that my soul was broken and desperately dehydrated. 
that in spite of all my achievements, my spirit was dry, dead. Until that day, God epiphanoed. He suddenly shone his light into my darkness, and I almost physically felt the, the light of God shine into my heart, and I felt layers of shame and regret that I thought I was going to have to walk with forever just come off me, and waves of love and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy just washed over me. I was on the Bromsgrove Road in Birmingham. I'll never forget it. It was crazy welcomed by the guys from Birmingham. It was like when the, the sun finally starts shining on a spring day and you kind of start to unfold into it and you uncrease into the sunlight after a, a long, cold winter. The light chases back the darkness. And so long as the light is shining, darkness is extinguished. You can't flick a switch and turn off darkness. You can only flick a switch and turn on light. Light and darkness cannot coexist. And so long as the light is on, darkness is extinguished. Therefore, we don't need to live anymore like those held captive by darkness. Once you let the light of God shine into your heart, everything is different. And you can live free. And you can operate in all the ways that this letter instructs you. Let's look at what happens once God epiphanos, once he appears. Verses 3 to 8 of this book, by the way, give us one of the fullest explanations of salvation almost anywhere in the Bible. Verse 3, this is the flow of logic. Once upon a time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. If that's you, if that's any part of you, you do not need to live like that anymore. I was disobedient in that I distrusted God. I was deceived in that I thought I could outrun my sin and my shame with those worldly achievements, and I was enslaved in that I couldn't live without those things. I had become what I worshipped. I was verse 3 until verse 4. God, who is kind and loving, God, who is a saviour, has come in the person of Jesus, and he has. Verse 5, what has he done? He has saved us. He has saved us from all that stuff. The light has shone. The darkness has shriveled back. New life in him has come to us, is available to us today. How has he done this? Also, verse 5, not through anything that we have done. By his mercy. How? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit washing and renewal. This is salvation. When we say yes to Christ, be it for the first time or every day thereafter, we are washed clean and we are renewed. That means that a central mark of salvation is that every sinful, shameful, regretful, painful thing that you've ever done or experienced or had done to you is washed right off, never to return. Do you want to be free of all that stuff? I present to you the gospel of King Jesus Christ. Free gift to you today. But it's even better than that. Salvation in God means that his Holy Spirit, his power and his presence comes and takes up residence in your heart and you are renewed. When Jesus comes, he doesn't just fix you up so you can go out and do it all again. He renews you to live differently with a Godward orientation and the power and the impetus to live for him and therefore not to get sucked back into worshipping and being shaped by every other unhealthy thing that this broken world offers up. He doesn't just repair you, he renews you. 
That means, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament, that for those in Christ, the old has gone. It's gone because the new has come. That's how a mercenary soldier in Crete is able to live as a peaceful, kind citizen. Christ's renewing in your life enables you to live free, and it enables you to live for him. And it enables you to live with the sure and certain confidence that Jesus is Lord over all things. And it should put fire in your bones to stand up in this world with that confidence in your identity in him, knowing that if God is for you, if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. The plans and purposes of Christ are secure in your life because you have been made new in him. And he has filled you with the Holy Spirit, the very power of God to stand. Now tell me, is that not good news, Gateway? Let's applaud our God. Look what he's done. Thank you, Lord. Verse 7. We are therefore justified by his grace. That means that before you have been made new, you need never feel shame or regret. Sorry, I'll start that again. It means that because you have been made new, you never need feel shame or regret or isolation again. The renewing power of the gospel obliterates shame. If you feel all wrong, the gospel declares you all right. If you feel guilt, the gospel declares you forgiven. If you feel isolated, the gospel calls you into relationship with God and his people. This is what the gospel does. Also, verse 7, therefore, we have become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. As a child of God, think on this, you are an heir of his estate. You were adopted into his family and given all that he is. Fix and I recently had our um, wills made, our final will and testaments made. And in there, it states that when we die, certain people, mainly our kids, get our stuff. They are our inheritors. That's what happens. We have inherited the hope of eternal life from our Father. It's incredible. You're adopted into his family. Glenn and Linda, you're adopted into his family. Simon and Jane, adopted into his family. John and Roe, adopted into his family. Simon and Agarad, adopted into his family. You are given all that is his. John and Sally, Alex and Emily, Anita, Nathaniel, Chris, Alex, Karen, you are given all that he is. What does it mean to be an heir, an inheritor of God's riches? Folks, it means that we live with confidence in the world that our God is for us and with us and that he has plans for us and that he has given us everything we need to live this life and to do it in the way that the gospel calls us to and that we do it with King Jesus at our side and that just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too inherit that same power so that we too can have life in its fullness now, and one day too, we will inherit Jesus' gift of eternal life to us. It's a total win-win to give your life to Jesus and to live in the glorious light and be adopted into God's family, and it's on free offer to you today. Long-term believer, new Christian, and everyone in between, it's a free gift, just waiting to be received. And so Titus says, live it out, people. Don't get involved in useless quarrels and genealogies about your family and your pecking order in society and what you should and shouldn't do to be right with God. Jesus has taken care of all of that. You are saved, justified, 
washed clean, made new, adopted into God's family, and therefore you have full rights to everything that is in his household. Open the fridge, take out what you like. Abundance, blessing, healing, wholeness, hope, future, salvation. Just receive it with confidence and live it out. And go and show the world in your conduct and in your confidence in him how to live for something bigger and better in God. I want to just try and tie all this together now. So there's one very simple application here. Whether you are a Christian of many years or right at the start of this journey of faith, the application is the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in fact, Jesus Christ himself offers himself to you in fullness today. So you may find yourself somewhere in the scale of, I'm in Christ, but I'm not living out the fullness of what he calls me to in some way. Maybe that still means living with the old order of shame and guilt. Maybe it means not able to kind of shake that terrible dark habit. Well, I'll say to you what someone said to me a few years back, as many years back actually. They said they felt that I was just simply paddling around in the shallow end of the swimming pool with Jesus. I found that provocation so helpful in my life. Dive into his wide open ocean of love and abundance for you and let it overwhelm and engulf you in its shame-busting, chain-breaking, darkness-slaying peace and power. Or maybe on the other end, you're someone for whom the gospel, this, this Jesus, you've realized this is what my heart has been aching for all my life. The response is the same. Come to him today. Come to him. Come to him again if you have to. His arms are open wide. He is for you. He deeply desires you. And he is willing and able to wash you clean and to renew you today and to draw you close to him. His words to you today are this. Just come to me. Don't hold back and don't delay. Yeah. New life in Christ. Renewed life in Christ. It's all yours. It's all yours for the taking today. He's made it so. Should we pray? King Jesus, you are amazing. We are complex beings in a complex world. All with our own deep-held desires and thoughts and beliefs, all wanting to go our own way, all scurrying around trying to make a change in the world and leave our stamp and form a legacy and rail against the things we, we don't like in this world. But the ultimate purpose of our being is to be in relationship with you, and you have come to us and made that possible. And so I pray, Lord, that we would grasp that very simple call of the gospel on us again today. Lord, I pray for all of us, brothers and sisters here together, that whether we've been followers of you for many decades or whether today might be the first day that I say yes to Jesus, Lord, that you would help to create a, a kind of a fertility in the heart by which the gospel might sink in and take root again today. And we might know in our inner man, our inner woman, that you have done all that is possible for us to live free, to be washed clean and to be renewed and to be in relationship with you and to live in the household of God forever and to know peace and mercy all the days of our life. King Jesus, we honor you. We worship you. As we worship you now, receive your glory, I ask, in your glorious name. Amen.